0: Hello and welcome to Critical Theory in Context, the podcast of the Center for Humanities and Social Change in Berlin. My name is Robin Zedekates and I'm co-director of the Center as well as professor of philosophy at the Free University in Berlin. And I'm very pleased to welcome you to today's episode on structural racism and what it means in practice. To understand the social reality of racism, we need to draw on all available scholarly and theoretical resources. But talking and thinking about race and racism has once again itself become a contested terrain of social, political, and also symbolic struggles. So the struggle against racism entails far-reaching polarizations not only in the streets, but also in the academic debate. The concept of structural racism lies at the center of these debates. Anti-racist struggles and social movements, as well as a new wave of critical theorizing about race and racism, have focused our attention on this concept emphasizing the structural nature of racism. But there's also a massive public backlash against critical race theory, which focuses on this term attacking its presumably ideological character. In today's conversation on the meaning of structural racism, I'm joined by Magali Besson and César Cabezas to reflect on the complex issues arising in this constellation. Where are we in the debates and conceptual struggles about racism today? What is structural racism, and how is it related to institutional or systemic racism? And what practical difference do these distinctions make? These are the questions we want to address in today's conversation with two guests. Magali Besson, who is professor of philosophy at Sorbonne University in Paris, and whose work has highlighted how racism is debated and often sidelined in France and Europe, and César Cabezas, assistant professor of philosophy at Temple University in Philadelphia, who will bring in his take on the American context and debates. As Magali remarks at some point in the conversation, it is crucial to keep in mind the political stakes of the debate about racism. When we ask, what do we want the concept of racism to do? That means, where do we want to fight? And what instruments do we think are the most apt for the anti-racist struggles? With this awareness of the practical and political significance of thinking about racism, we now dive into the discussion on structural racism with Magali and César. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello everyone, and a special welcome to our guests today, Magali Besson and César Cabezas. Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hello, thank you for having us.
2: Hi, thank you for inviting me.
0: So, yeah, I'd like to start from uh, what seems a somewhat paradoxical situation. On the one hand, anti-racist struggles and social movements such as Black Lives Matter, as well as a new wave of critical theorizing about race and racism have focused our attention on the structural nature of racism. Um, On the other hand, however, we are confronted with uh, quite a massive public backlash against largely imaginary constructions of critical race theory, and it's presumably unscientific concepts such as structural racism. And that's not just among conservative commentators and in the media, but uh, also in academia, also in the humanities and the social sciences. So talking and thinking about race and racism has itself become once again a contested terrain of social, political, and also academic struggles. Where are we in these struggles? And as this probably plays out quite differently depending on the context. I'd like to start by asking you, Magalie, to tell us something on the current situation in France. So, yeah, over to you. Looking forward to our conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Robin. It's a great question to start a conversation. And indeed, I imagine that it's really different depending on on context. In France, you have to know that... um, race talk and racism talks have always been different and it's really not the same both in public debates and in academic uh, writing or thinking when you try to talk about race and uh, about racism. About racism, we are witnessing these days, I would say since 2018, a renewed strength of the classical Republican colorblind position, which has always been the mainstream dominant position in anti-racist struggles, particularly in the 80s and 90s. And the position is founded on three arguments. Races don't exist. Uh, Racism is a kind of discourse. And it is predicated of agents who hold a certain number of false beliefs. And three, the Republican colorblind regime, because it is founded on the fundamental principles of equality for all citizens, regardless of their uh, origins, uh, races, religions, etc., is in itself uh, able to protect groups or citizens who may be discriminated against uh, because of their alleged race. So according to the colorblind mainstream dominant position, if you want to suppress racism, you have to suppress race. So don't talk about race and you may have uh, racism disappear. We can come back to how this position was historically uh, built or constructed from the Dreyfus affair, actually. So it has a long history history. Uh, Oppose. I mean, on the other on the other side, there is a new twist in this mainstream dominant colorblind position. And you're right to mention that um, now the new twist is that not only political uh, figures or conservative media figures actually defend this colorblind position, but it's also very spread in the academic world and. There is um, an attack directed at another part of the academic world, at certain social scientists, uh, historians, political theorists, who are self-identified as critical and hetero-identified as decolonials or indigenists, the identitarian left, islamo-leftists, and now wokes, which is the last of a very long series of derogatory terms, And they are accused of reactivating the idea of race uh, and as allies uh, of some anti-racist, anti-colonialist movements who are said to be communitarian or separatist movements. They are accused of creating together the racist ideology they are claiming to uh, try to dismantle. And that's what our president called... uh, threatening to break the republic into pieces. And this is the attack he actually uh, explicitly directed at the critical academics. So um, these guys, these uh, critical thinkers, claim that races do exist, although they are not bio-behavioral entities, but social constructs. Second, racism is not, uh, first and foremost, an attribute of individuals rooted in racial prejudice, but it should also and maybe rather be studied as an institutional reality, uh, a specific political and social racial formation, to use uh, Michael Omi and Howard Winant's uh, famous uh, phrase. And three, the Republican, uh, formal Republican principle of juridical equality may or may not be protective of individuals uh, or racial minorities depending on the real and effective racialization mechanisms it helps to prevent or, on the other hand, it helps to facilitate or maybe to hide. So the semantic field of race, that is race talk, should not be suppressed uh, from these critical thinkers' point of view. On the contrary, it is indispensable in order to identify and assess both individual attitudes and behaviors and institutional norms, procedures, objectives that function racially. So anti-racism in France now is really a house divided. You have colorblind and critical anti-racists and they have irreconcilable claims and each camp claimed that the other camp is racist.
0: Yeah, I see. I mean, we'll come back to this, especially the idea of an institutional conception of racism uh, maybe in the next step. But I'd also like to hear from César how the dynamic of the Conversation about racism has developed in the US over the last couple of months and years because, I mean, the, the news is pretty terrifying, right? In critical race theory, that construct has been picked up by Republican legislatures on a couple of states uh, from uh, Texas, Idaho to, to Florida. It's supposed to be banned, it is already banned, um, cannot be taught in schools. There are attacks on, uh, on universities uh, teaching. Critical race theory—that sounds pretty McCarthyite. So, where, what is going on there?
2: Yes, um, it, it is quite interesting that a lot of the discourses and and, and discussions and debates that Magali mentioned in France are—they they have analogs in the U.S. And I think that this reaction against critical race theory is one of those, and it has come to the fore as one of the main issues in in political in political life today, and in fact became a, a main issue. In the in the recent senatorial elections, but it'll probably become even more even more important in the midterm elections. So, you know, just wait to hear much more about critical race theory. One thing that's interesting about the attack on critical race theory from, from the right is that the, the term critical race theory as, as it is used by the right is, is perhaps a bit misleading, at least if you sort of go by the original meaning of the term and the original sort of academic context in which it arose. But critical race theory arose, it, it was kind of like a, a branch of critical legal studies by, you know, black feminist legal scholars that wanted to argue that just like critical legal uh, scholars had argued that, you know, the law could discriminate also the level of institutions. And in order to like fix the legal system, we needed to fix questions at the level of structural dynamics. Critical race theory made the same argument, but also applied it to the question of race. Right. And, and then, of course, you have uh, a, a whole sort of uh, academic debates that stem from critical race theory and expanding its scope outside of uh, legal studies to also, you know, other fields and disciplines, uh, including philosophy. But the, really what the, the right is uh, reacting against is the study of the history of racism in the U.S. So what they call critical race theory is a kind of like catch all phrase that they decided would be good to use um, against any kind of discourse that uh, rejects the kind of you know colorblind uh, discourse that magali was mentioning in favor of a more color conscious discourse, right? And and in the American context, that means a discourse that um, acknowledges that the United States was, you know, from its very beginning, shaped and informed and and and, and altered by that by, by by the history of slavery and, and other forms of racism over, over its history. Um, so you have the rejection of critical race theory and, and sort of implementing a much more race-conscious history in, in, in American schools. And of course, the right is is against that. So just, you know, moving beyond that, I think I would like to mention um, that in, in, in recent years in the United States, I think there's been a shift away from a kind of mainstream discourse where there was a kind of, I would say, relative consensus on the idea that the us had become a colorblind society, a post-racial society in the 2000s and the 2010s, you found this in public discourse, you even found it in academic discourse. and you know with the election of Barack Obama, it was even more of an idea that was widely shared. And I think what really happened was the the, the, the case of 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 killing of black men, right? Uh, in the hands of police officers, in the hands of of white vigilantes starting with the case of Trevor Martin in 2012, uh, and then Eric Garner in 2014, um, and the rise of Black Lives Matter, right, as a grassroots social movement that relied on, you know, the kind of new tools of social media um, to to raise claims that, of course, have been part of anti-racist struggles in the U.S. for a very long time, um, but one that Acquired much more national attention because they were able to use uh, social media, and specifically Twitter, and use the use of hashtags, the BLM hashtag, as a way to raise awareness of, of the of the issues of police brutality, uh, as well as other issues that affect Black people, like mass incarceration, um, um, you know, health disparities, educational disparities, um, and so on. So, on on the one hand, as a reaction of these police killings and then the Black Lives Matter movement, you had a much more national awareness by the general public of of the complaints and the struggles of of, of people of color, of black people specifically in the last years, I would say in the last, you know, 10 to five years. And I think you can think of the reaction on the right as a kind of backlash against a a much more sort of color-conscious society. So what you see here right now is really like two positions, you know, the kind of color-conscious position and the colorblind position clashing at, at a point in history where, again, the semantics of race and who gets to like, and M- adopt the word racism to their own purposes becomes very important, and I think this is this is why this discussion we're going to have today is going to be is going to be very important to understand really what's at the core of of these kinds of claims about structural racism, about implicit bias, about microaggressions, different forms of racism. It seems like there's just like so many forms of racism now, and 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 I think that it's important to sort of clarify exactly uh, what's at stake in 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 calling you know all of these things racist. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, maybe we can pick up there. And, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, the concept of structural racism plays a very prominent role in these political struggles, as well as in attempts to theorize racism and its enduring reality. At the same time, it has been, um, you know, very much sort of criticized as as vague and scientific. Some say it's self-racist, etc. cetera. Um, and I mean, there, there is indeed maybe one problem with it, namely that it's often somehow taken for granted, not... Uh, you know, there's not a lot of theoretical work um, on the concept of structural racism itself. So um, I think it's important, the question that you raise, you know, what is structural racism actually? How is it different from um, and related to other forms of uh, racism, such as, uh, you know, institutional racism or what is sometimes called systemic racism, but also to the individual and the interpersonal um, level? And, you know, what are, concrete examples that would illustrate the need for that concept and the work it can do in philosophical and political analysis. So as as your research, César, has been precisely on this question, maybe you can uh, say a bit from, the, from your point of view uh, what kind of philosophical work you think the concept of structural racism can do that these, these other concepts are not as um, well positioned to do.
2: Sure. I I think perhaps to me, the most important aspect of the concept of structural racism and these cognate concepts like systemic racism and institutional racism is that they're all a reaction to a kind of traditional model of understanding racism, which thinks that the paradigmatic case of racism is that of the racist bigot. Right. And, and this is something you get at least in American discourse. You know, the traditional conception of what is racist is to think is to think about uh, what, what they call in America, the Archie Bunker type. Right. It's kind of like white working, usually working class, um, you know, racist bigot. Right. And then, you know, out of those racist beliefs, then you have, you know, discrimination, acts of racial violence and so on. Um, and then according to this you know sort of mainstream understanding of racism that you know focuses on individuals and their beliefs and their a- attitudes or intentions or actions, then if, if you adopt that conception of racism, then you may think that over time, right? And this was the discourse in America for a very long time, that over time you had a decrease of racism, right? Because if you look at surveys on 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 racial attitudes among white people you would see that over time when people became or were, were less likely to embrace racist beliefs they were less likely to embrace racist policies but then what you got at the same time right and and this is where the the need i think for the concept of social racism arose among social movements is that you you had this sort of discourse about the decrease of racist attitudes among individual whites but you had a permanence and st- a stability of all the racial inequalities and and, and and all the kind of like racial harms that Black people continue to experience, right, in an allegedly colorblind post-racial society. And and I think that the first, perhaps important, um, theoretical development reacting to this was the work of um, Kwame Ture and and Charles Hamilton. Kwame Ture, also known as Stokely Permichael, the rest of people that were involved in the in the kind of anti-racist movements of the sixties, who published this book called Black Power, right? And there's a lot of things going on in Black Power, but one of the things that Black Power gave us is an analysis of it, and in fact, a coining of the term institutional racism, right? And and the thing that Thoreau and Hamilton were reacting to was precisely this idea that um, many, many white liberals wanted to restrict the problem of racism to the Ku Klux Klan and racist bigots, right? And individual acts of violence. When in reality, what Turin and Hamilton, you know, understood and experienced in their communities was that black people also suffered because of, you know, lack of uh, access to health care, lack of access to educational opportunities, lack of access to employment and, and all these, you know, ways in which institutions of society, the structures of society, Uh, were also organized in such a way and distributed resources and opportunities in such a way that um, they perpetuated the same effects of racism um, as, say, you know, Jim Crow and slavery had uh, done before. So I think to me, you know, to start the conversation, that's the most important thing to think about, structural or systemic or institutional racism, is to think of racism beyond the paradigm of the individual racist, and then shift our focus to, uh, how institutions, how social structures, um, also do the work of of reinforcing racial inequality and and the other disadvantages that Black people, people of color, face on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah, that's that's uh, certainly very convincing. I mean, the the, I, I guess the question is whether that shift in focus means that we or, or what that shift in focus implies for the role of the individual. Um, you know her attitudes and the uh, potential moral failings that happen there if people participate in racist practices, institutions, and and structures. And I know Magali that in your work um, that moral dimension does play an important role. Although you do agree that there's a structural, institutional dimension um, to racism uh, as well. So I would just like to invite you maybe to say a bit more about the the need for and the significance of this more uh, that's a moral approach to racism or the, the role of the individual uh, that you uh, also center on.
1: Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, to, to come back to the question uh, of um, the definition of institutional versus structural uh, racism. So, I just want to start with emphasizing, like Cesar just said, that um, the main idea. Uh, when uh, Carmichael and Hamilton coined the term institutional racism, was indeed to oppose uh, a strict view of in, of racism as an individual flaw or a uh, problem issue. But it, 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 I mean, I think that now in 2022. We should not forget uh, these aspects of racism. They have not disappeared. I mean, and there are instances of individual racism that still are very dangerous and very violent and um, and extremely, and maybe more and more in the open, at least in the French context. And when I mean individual racism, I mean, or uh, the literature usually means two things. Um, racism as a set of beliefs, uh, judgments about the existence of races, usually grounded in nature, that is the existence of biological races that also have uh, moral, psychological, cultural, uh, specific uh, features. So racism as um, doctrine, as racial doctrine, but it also means racism as a set of Attitudes, affects, feelings of hatred, hostility against members of racial groups. And these two aspects of individual racism, that is cognitive and affective uh, racism, were originally, at least in France, how the term racism uh, appeared and what it came to describe or or, uh, apprehend. And then uh, the idea uh, was that at least again in France, um, some people uh, started to make the shift. And among these people, and I mention it because it's important, because of how the discourse, the public discourse is set in France. As I said earlier, um, uh, from the French point of view, structural or institutional racism is a form that uh, is supposed to apply to the US context, maybe the British context, Uh, but certainly not the French context where uh, we may have uh, racist people, bad people, hence the moral idea behind it, we'll come back to it, Um, but we don't have anything like structural or institutional racism. And here it's very important, that's why it's very important to mention that Franz Fanon, uh, the Martinique's uh, psychiatrist and um, thinker and activist uh, of the 50s, Um, mentioned in a very important lecture given in 56, so very early, a lecture called um, Racism and Culture, he mentioned that we should reject, and I I quote him, the habit of considering racism as a disposition of the mind. Uh, Instead, we should consider racism as, again I quote him, a disposition inscribed in a determined system and he uses the term system and by that at the time in 56 he meant the colonial system of uh, the caribbean french caribbean islands and uh, algeria because he was also involved uh, and committed uh, uh, in favor of uh, the algerian independence or independent war so, as early as 56, we find evidence among French thinkers that we should go beyond the simple or very strict uh, uh, application of the term racism as a noun or as an adjective to uh, specific individuals who would be, uh, again, considered as villains in the story. Now, what, uh, what does it mean, this uh, uh, racism as? Uh, characteristics of, a, of an institution or a system. And here, I think it's important to have in mind that discrimination is also a very important term here. So we have, so to speak, a four entries matrix, racism and discrimination, and institutional and systemic. And in my view, systemic and structural are really close in the way usually people uh, uh, use the terms or, or mention it. So from a legal point of view, for instance, a judge, again in France, can uh, identify discrimination as systemic when there is evidence that a series of independent causes all contribute to produce uh, advantages or disadvantages to a category of population. And institutional discrimination then would probably uh, result from the indifference of an institution organization to the specific situation of uh, groups of persons, of racialized groups. In France, there was a very important case, a very recent and important case in 2019, um, when 25 workers of Malian origin who were hired illegally by a construction company uh, in Paris uh, had been working in very dangerous conditions. And a serious accident uh, occurred and the labor uh, inspection visited the construction site. And the labor inspection noticed discrimination manifested by the fact that these Malian workers were automatically assigned to the most difficult, dangerous jobs without any proper safety measure. The hierarchy of the jobs on the construction site was also established according to the racial or ethnic belonging of uh, people. And um, of course, their illegal administrative situation placed the workers in a position of great vulnerability and um, economic dependence with regard to their employer. The workers sued the company uh, in front of the labor court in France, Conseil des Prud'hommes, and they won. And the judges, for the first time, acknowledged uh, what they called a racial systemic discrimination. That's when the term appeared for the first time in uh, French uh, courts, tribunals. In this case, what is interesting is that um, the systemic discrimination, in order to be uh, established and acknowledged or recognized by the judges, uh, d- did not require that there was a, a racist intention. Uh, on the part of the company. That is, they didn't need to establish that the behavior uh, was caused or even accompanied by uh, racist motives, feelings, beliefs, judgments, prejudices, etc. Discrimination was the result that can be attested and proved factually. And this is what is really important in the difference between individual and institutional racism. On the one hand... Usually when you try to point at individual racism, again, be it cognitive or affective, you call for the intention of the the racist people. When you focus on institutional discrimination, you don't need to care about intentions of the souls of people, what they really think. You just need to pay attention to the consequences, to the results of certain behaviors, which may or may not, and this is not, again, the problem, be uh, caused by um, uh, racist uh, beliefs. Now, this is where we meet the concept of institutional racism, because, okay, I was talking about institutional discrimination as it can be uh, attested and proved in law. Uh, Institutional racism was created in order to emphasize that uh, individual blaming or uh, moral condemnation was sometimes useless and maybe could lead to backlash, to individual resistance um, in the anti-racist struggle. So you wanted to be able to diagnose phenomena of unequal access to resources, statuses, unequal positioning in the social hierarchy of specific racial groups in the absence of racist intentions from individual actors or in the absence of explicit racist laws. So this is why it was a very important concept to to start with.
0: This is Critical Theory in Context. My guests today are Magali Besson and César Cabezas. Magali Besson is Professor of Philosophy at the Sorbonne in Paris and currently a member of the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton. Her research focuses on contemporary theories of justice in relation to critical theories of race and racism. For many years her work has been devoted to developing a philosophical perspective on anti-racism, anti-discrimination and the responsibility for colonialism and slavery. She is the author of numerous books in French on these topics, including a book for the general public entitled Les races, ça existe ou pas? (Races, do they exist or not? Which appeared with Gallimard in 2018. And one of her most recent publications in English is an article entitled Racism and Epistemologies of Ignorance, Framing the French Case. You can find the details as well as a link to Magalie's university website in the show notes. Cesar Cabezas is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Temple University in Philadelphia. He did his PhD at Columbia on the notion of structural racism, and in this PhD he argues that the concept of structural racism is vital to anti-racist theory and practice because it helps us explain the durability of racial inequality and to ultimately challenge it. His current work is primarily in the philosophy of race, in social philosophy and Latin American thought, addressing core questions related to the concept of racism. In a recent article entitled, Racism, a Moral or Explanatory Concept, César argues that racism should not primarily be conceived as a moral concept, but rather as an explanatory concept. Again, you can find the details and the link to his website in the show notes. Two questions the approaches taken by our guests give rise to are the following. How does the structural nature of racism relate to the responsibility of individual agents? And how do the different layers of racism, from structures to individual actions and prejudices, relate and interact? And with these questions, we return to the second part of our conversation. So just to follow up on what you uh, said, Magali, up to this point, you've outlined why a conception of institutional racism is necessary because it allows us to talk about racism in the absence of racist intentions and laws. But you've also said that you think the focus on intentions is important and that intentional racism obviously hasn't disappeared in any meaningful way. So the shift away from intentions can also be quite ambivalent. Maybe you can just talk a bit more about the problems you see regarding the conception of institutional racism um, that moves away from the focus on on intentions and uh, maybe you can also speak a bit about which conception of racism you think is the most promising in this regard.
1: So, uh, yes, um, as you mentioned, Robin, it is an ambivalent concept and it was criticized uh, because there is, from the start, within the concept of institutional racism, it was not clear if the concept uh, was used to uh, point at a specific institutional functioning or a more global, normative, systemic uh, approach uh, that tried to establish a continuity between uh, historical slavery, colonialism, segregation on one hand, and current uh, sets of institutions, values, and beliefs, uh, on the other hand. And this is in the ambivalence that um, you can maybe find ways to criticize the concept. And this is Why? For my part, I like to focus on institutional racism, because I think um, if you take it seriously and in a stricter uh, type of definition, uh, you can use institutional racism to refer to um, the analysis of of specific institutions, schools, uh, the police, uh, markets, uh, social housing, And you can also focus not only at the macro level markets or social housing, but you can also focus at the meso and micro level. This police station, this school in the 14th arrondissement in Paris, and you can try to see whether in the institution at the macro, meso or micro level, you can find um, specific procedures, specific norms or specific objectives in the functioning of the institution that are conducive of uh, uh, racial inequalities as a consequence of the global functioning of this institution, again, at the micro, meso, or macro level. So are they or are they not producers of racially-based inequalities? The concept of uh, systemic uh, racism, if... uh, Precisely, I I try to distinguish it from the concept of institutional racism as I just tried to to define it, is much broader. And um, in my opinion, the the problem is that somehow um, it, it unifies a complex combination of a plurality of processes, discourses, norms, factors, actions... Which taken separately may have heterogeneous meanings and may produce internal frictions in the so called system. So, systemic racism has a good part, it politicizes or repoliticizes racism. But it may be at the expense of an organizational simplification of uh, what a system is. And it usually neglects micro and meso dimensions uh, of racism. Beyond the conceptual problem, I also see a political problem with the concept of systemic racism. And, And the problem is the following. If the system, maybe national system, maybe regional system, the EU, for instance, or maybe even global system, but if the system is racist, Who do you address in order to fight racial discriminations, racial stigmatization or or racism in itself? If any institution is presumed to be part of the system, you cannot find uh, the political uh, interlocutor to whom you could address your claim for anti-discrimination, racial equality, uh, reparations for racial wrongs or it would be absurd since the dominant groups making uh, political and institutional decisions would probably refuse to lose their their privileges so it makes you a little bit unable to actually find the proper ways to address racism and fight against it again at the institutional level so okay that's 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 why i'm i usually choose to to speak of institutional racism, because I find the concept both conceptually and politically uh, more conducive to anti-racist
2: struggles. Um, yeah, Robin, can I? Sure. Say go
0: ahead. something.
2: Yeah, I, I really like uh, Magali your your um, points on this. I think it's important to um, clarify the concept of institutional or systemic structural racism as an alternative to the individualist model. Um, but as you said, there's been a lot of, uh, or rather a lack of this kind of like conscious decision to try to explicitly state what it is and what do we mean by that. Um, I think I think part of the problem as well is uh, at the level of social ontology. I, I think, you know, our concept of what an institution is, what a social practice is, what a social structure is, what a social system is, is also not clear, right? Um, so, because, for example, in my, I think I agree with the, uh, your overall uh, systematization of, you know, how to think about these sort of structural terms, forms of racism. I actually think that the concept of social structure can also admit um, of thinking of social structures at the micro level, at the meso level, at the macro level. Right. But, you know, we can call that an institution or a structure. I think it's interesting, like sometimes, say, in English, for example, you, you can talk of an individual school as an institution, Um, but I don't, you know, but then you may say, you may call the educational system, it's a social system in a way, right? Um, So what I do usually, I kind of like, I think in a way is exactly what you're doing, but I think that the term social structure, to me at least, uh, it could have made of, you know, different degrees of social reality. So there can be a school that is a social structure uh, at at a kind of micro level, um, and then there could be a uh, an educational system that is a structure at, at the macro level and perhaps an even more macro level, say, you know, the United States as a nation state, right? Or, or even a global system. Some people, you know, think that systemic or structural racism is a global system uh, of, say, you know, white supremacy like Charles Mills argued. Um, but I think you're right that at the end of the day I think it's important. Uh, I, In my view and I think you you were saying the same thing that even if we think that we need to pay attention to how institutions or social structures also play a role in reproducing racial harms and racial inequality, we can't abandon uh, our attention you know, to individual racism at uh, this kind of cognitive and affective acts of interpersonal racism. Um, and in my view, it's, again, it goes back to social ontology because I think that you know, social structures and institutions operate because individuals are, you know, doing the operating, right? They are, you know, engaging in the practices that create and recreate the institutions that are um, causing these, um, you know, have, having these these racial effects. Um, I also agree, though, that you know, one core I think tenet of people that think from an institutional racism perspective is to under uh, to de-emphasize the role of intentions, right? And as you said you know, intentions uh, seem to be very important for a kind of individualistic model of understanding racism and also an a sort of individualistic model of understanding moral responsibility as well. That's where it comes from, right? We can't ascribe moral responsibility unless we can sort of like, you know, trace back the intentions um, to the individual. Um, and, and I think that one thing that um, at least contemporary accounts of institutional racism do is that they emphasize, at least in the US, you have the question of disparate impact. Right. You, you emphasize the question of the consequences that the institution has, regardless of the intentions of the individuals, regardless of whether they actually had any sort of like racist goals or racist intentions. Um, and, and, and I think that that is something that social movements really uh, hold on to uh, when they denounce systemic racism or institutional racism. And I think that's also part of the backlash that you find among, um, you know, Many liberals in the US, but also people on the right, of course, uh, because they are still operating with this individualistic model of racism where intentionality seems to be central. And if you don't identify intentionality, then you're being unfair, right? Or at least you're being disingenuous when you are sort of, you know, ascribing racism to an institution without doing the work of identifying who are the racists that are behind, you know, this institutional racist impact or, you know, what were the racist goals? They always, you know, want you to, to identify the smoking gun, right, of, of individual racism. Um, and I think that thinking about it that way, is, it, it kind of misunderstands or misconstrues the point of the institutionalist model, which is to de-emphasize intentions and rather emphasize effects and consequences, because those are going to have the same effect on, you know, the livelihood of people of color, whether or not the, inten- the racist intentions were there. Yeah, and then the other thing I wanted to uh, add as well is that I, I think a lot of this, a lot, a lot of this is also um at least in the American context, right? From the very beginning, uh, in the work of tour and Hamilton, I, I think it was not clear what institutional racism was. Uh, you know, in my reading of Ture and Hamilton, they actually didn't really abandon the individualist model fully, because when you read their their account of institutional racism, they still try to ascribe this institutional racism. To white people being racist, but doing so in a covert way. Right. So for them, institutional racism is the same as covert racism. And individual racism is overt racism. Right. So institutional racism for Drew and Hamilton is just a way for racist white people to covertly um harm and disadvantage black people through the institutions of society without having to do it um, you know, personally uh and overtly and without having to like, you know. Sort of embrace the Ku Klux Klan overtly in, in in a period of time where that became much less acceptable in American society. Um, I think that we have moved beyond that original conception of institutional racism. I think you know part of the point today, the way that social movements in the US use it, at least, is that um, you don't, as you said, you don't need the intentionality. So you don't need you don't even need individual racists. I think this is you know what's behind these kinds of like, you know, kind of like political, you know, cat, catchy phrases like racism without racists, right? In my mind, a, an interpretation of that claim is that you can have racism as in institutional racism without individual racists. And and I think that that's really what's behind the claims of social movements today when they when they speak of, um, for example, the police, right? Of course, and I guess the police is interesting again, because here you have an institution that is racist perhaps both because there are individual police officers like say Derek Chauvin who are racist um but even if, if even if we could get rid of the bad apples right the the police as an institution would continue to be racist unless we get rid of um you know its racist norms its practices um both explicit and implicit um so i think part of the critique of institutional racism is also moving beyond and a a kind of understanding of what's needed to overcome racism and to overcome the ways that the many institutions of society harm people of color, right? It's not just a matter of identifying the racist people and expelling them from those institutions, right? It's not enough to just get rid of the bad apples, but you need a sort of fundamental restructuring and overhauling of the institution such that it doesn't create Uh, incentive structures for people to continue to do the same work. Um, But yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, we kind of agree on, uh, I think, uh, on these issues, uh, but I'm not ready to give up on, on the concept of systemic racism, I mean, partly because of what I said, and partly because in my own understanding, I think, when I think of a social system, I think of it as encompassing macro, meso, and micro level phenomena. Uh, You know, I think that the social system may include various institutions. It may include institutions at the meso level, like schools, at the macro level, like the educational system, but also individuals, right, that are, like, actually doing all the work of operating and engaging in social practices as well. Um, But I think that at the end of the day, I I think what I would argue is that it's important um, for people that are interested in institutional racism to try to understand what are the connections between racist institutions and individuals, right? Sometimes the individuals are explicitly racists. Sometimes they may be implicitly racist. Sometimes they may not be either. And they are just like, you know, engaged in a practice that has a racist consequence, right? Uh, because of the complexity of social life and, you know, the interaction of different, you know, social practices, you may have an institution that you know, had a perhaps a well-meaning intention, and then it ended, have, it ended up having a negative consequence on people of color. That may still, you know, warrant calling it racist, even if the individuals may not have intended it to be the case, and may not have even been acting out of implicit bias. So I think this also creates issues for ascriptions of moral responsibility and how to think of them as well, which I, I take it is part of what you're interested in too.
1: Yeah, if I if I may, Robin. <laughs> I completely agree with you, Um, and I think that regardless of uh, the term, we agree that when we try to think of racism, identifying on one hand individual and group processes of racial prejudice, and on the other hand, structural dynamics and analysis of power differentials are not competing uh, explanations. And we actually need both in order to grasp uh, what racism is uh, is really about. So power relations um, on the one hand and uh, uh, essentialization, naturalization, prejudices uh, on the other hand. And I agree. I mean, I'm all for it. Now, I think that... The disagreement about uh, the meaning or the nature of racism. And again, we can probably agree that we need a hybrid uh, type of definition, both connecting to the individuals and connecting to the structure. Social structure is also a word I, I like, so I-, I follow you there. Um uh, so, a hybrid definition, and there are people who try to have a more core or um, unified definition, or at least try to point uh, uh, the only or main uh, approach. And I think that the difference is probably due to the political nature of the process of definition or conceptualization itself. So what do we want the concept of racism to do? And you're right. So, that means where do we want to fight? I mean, and what instruments do we think are the the most apt for the anti-racist struggle? So from that point of view, even though I prefer to talk about institutional racism, I agree that there is something useful in the systemic racism uh, term. And it's uh, probably simply the fact that um, it's been adopted both by social movements in the US and abroad. uh, BLM, but uh, all the uh, movements that are both grassroots movements and uh, international uh, networks. But it also has been adopted by uh, political international institutions. And for instance, a very important, I think, um, new development, uh, the the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights report of last July, July 2021, uh, entitled Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Forms of Intolerance," gave a working definition of systemic racism. And they tried to relate it to structural and institutional racism. And they say that it's to be understood uh, as the operation of a complex, interrelated system of laws, policies, practices, and attitudes in state institutions, private sectors, societal structures, that combined Result in direct or indirect, intentional or unintentional, de jure or de facto discrimination, distinction, exclusion, restriction or preference on the basis of race, color, descent or national or ethnic origin. And I think that when you have uh, an important international institution, such as the United Nations, that uses the term and takes the time and pain to define it, then it means that it's a working concept, that we can work with that. So from that point of view, I think that if systemic racism is uh, what we can work with, both at very uh, local levels, cities, municipalities, regional levels, and international levels, then let's go for it, because that means that we can work together. And this is probably something that's really important in anti-racist struggle movements. Um, now, to come back to the moral question uh, that Robin has had asked about a few minutes uh, ago, um, what I think um, the problem is for uh, Uh, assessing moral responsibility, is that it seems that uh, systemic or structural racism is uh, oscillating between uh, two uh, possibilities in regards with individual responsibility. Uh, On one hand, if the system is racist, then no one is really to blame uh, for it. We're just part of the system. Um, we're, We're caught in the system. And then the risk is to encourage De-responsibilization, or you know, um, disengagement from anti-racist struggles by uh, justifications of the type "blame the system," you know, and you know there are many uh, such uh, justifications. And again, I think that Frantz Fanon uh, was aware of this difficulty because uh, still in the same uh, uh, conference, uh, lecture, uh, racism and culture, um, he said that uh, racism is only one element of a larger whole, that of a systemic uh, oppression of a people. The racist in a culture with racism is therefore normal. And I find this um, sentence very important and interesting because, okay, you're a racist, your system is racist, you're just adapted to the system, you're just being normal. So can we ask someone who's perfectly adapted to his or her system to to fight, uh, to rebel against the system? In, in one hand, um, it, it seems that it's very, I mean, that it's asking too much. Uh, it, it may be morally supererogatory to ask uh, of someone to go against not only their own privileges or advantages, but also against the system. Also, because uh, then we face a colossal uh, task, moral task, and we are very, very uh, small. Uh, we are very, I mean, what we can do is ultra marginal, considering uh, the, 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 the scale of the problem at hand. Moreover, if everything is racist, then, well, nothing really is. And, um, and then, to be called a racist, uh, paradoxically, can lose its condemnation. You know, I'm racist, yeah, I'm normal. I'm just like everyone else. And only moral heroes can uh, pick up the fight against racism. And considering what we said earlier, that is that actually individual uh, phenomena of racism have not disappeared, uh, insults, violence, torture, etc. I mean, so it may be important to not empty the notion of racism uh, of its f- strong, negative, critical charge, So not overuse it and make it as if it was just a regular, maybe okay, bad, but not too bad functioning of the system. On the other hand, if uh, we keep the strong negative evaluative dimension of racism, then to be called a racist, even if you um, explicitly hold non-racist beliefs or egalitarian beliefs, that is... Only your implicit, um, automatic, unconscious, um, let's say, uh, attitudes uh, testify of your racism, but you authentically and you have to imagine that it's, uh, you know, uh, explicitly and consciously defend egalitarian uh, or equality for for everyone. Then the risk is um, to make individuals feel guilty and to put them into a place where they don't really know where to start uh, in order to fight against their uh, implicit racist bias or biases. And this is, you know, uh, the very famous Robin DiAngelo's book, uh, 2018, uh, White Fragility. Uh, The title is White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. And and in the book, you you find many examples of the fact that... um, Accusing someone of racism often hinders dialogue, and the accusee devotes uh, his or her time uh, to denying the the stigmatizing characterization of his or her person as racist, rather than considering um, what his or her behavior may have been indicative of and what he or she can do in order to Change this uh, position, situation, or un- uncomfortable um, feeling. So, what I may suggest, um, if you have these both—I mean, both these uh, options—is actually, and I think that's what you also were uh, um, hinting at. You can have people in a racist structure, racist system, racist society. You can ask people to reflect upon their own uh, positioning in the hierarchy, in the social and racial hierarchy, and maybe reflect on the meaning of their privileged position uh, in the hierarchy. So if the social structure is um, or are conducive of maintaining racial injustices, what can we do? What can we do at the again, as you said, micro, meso, micro level in order to improve these uh, these uh, structures? Where do we stand within the system? And so, the first step would probably be to, and this is actually at least a first step in the French um, in the French uh, context. First step would be to acknowledge that we are living in. Well, a racially organized society, and again, this is really something that French people have a hard time uh, accepting. Um, so, the question would be: Where do I stand in my in my uh, in the social in my social world? Am I privileged? From what point of view? Being privileged racially doesn't mean that you are privileged uh, uh, completely or at, if for all different types of uh, reasons and factors. But then it also means that you can uh, uh, fight what uh, José Medina and Charles Mills, etc., call meta-ignorance, or uh, what Charles Mills called white ignorance. That is, um, indifference to our lack of knowledge about our racial formation. Arrogance, that's Medina's terms. Arrogance or the fact that one presumes to know everything there is to know uh, from their own racial perspective and laziness or intellectual laziness that is a refusal to find out more about r- how racial differences may have an impact on on different uh, persons standpoints etc so um, that would be something that we can, that is still uh, morally required of people living in a society where if they are really Uh, authentically uh, engaged toward uh, emancipation and equality. And that's it. That's very, I mean, these ideals are very simple. Equality, uh, emancipation, or or liberty. You know, these are the French uh, ideals from our French motto, liberté, égalité, fraternité. If this is really what you believe in, then you may have to commit to uh, at least realizing that the reality is not up to the ideal. And from that, there is a moral um, responsibility. I mean, we can actually ask people to be accountable, uh, answerable for their own uh, cognitive realization and then uh, uh, engagement in social movements.
0: Maybe um, to, to complicate that a bit, I mean, I was wondering whether there aren't two problems in this picture that you, this very complex picture that you, just drew, which uh, doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But at the same time, I wonder, um, does this problem not to a certain extent also occur only if one abstracts from the fact that there have always been in these societies, including in France and Germany, also anti-racist movements and struggles that have always, uh, let's say, um, disturbed this, this, this... this image of normality in which then the accusation of racism becomes such a you know personalized shock and if that is the case um you know in the end uh, what does it tell us about more the society than maybe about the 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 question of racism and the ways in which it has been criticized that people uh, tend to react in this way that they feel overburdened or Uh, that they feel offended, um, et cetera. I mean, that that says a lot about the self-image of the society, which doesn't seem to correspond, uh, you know, neither with the historical reality of racism, but also not with the fact that there have been, um, you know, people suffering in different ways from that racism, uh, 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 but also um, struggling against um, this historical reality of racism, including in, in, in France. So I wonder, you know, that wouldn't that be a reason to from the beginning um describe the situation in somewhat different terms? And the other point would be regarding this this last point, which you know strategically makes a lot of sense to me. So that they say, you know, if you're committed to um, to, you know, freedom, equality and solidarity, let's say, then, uh, you know, how come you're still a racist? <laughs> if that, if that's the... Uh, how come you still engage in practices that have at least these effects even if you're not, um, you know, consciously holding on to racist beliefs and sort of kind of internal critique, let's say? Um, I mean, one worry there could be that it's, it's, in the end, maybe too harmonistic or maybe historically not... Um, Complex enough because if you know, take Fanon for example, also Du Bois makes a similar argument. I mean, I think what they want to show is that it's not just that um, these, um, let's say, Western societies and their official commitment to freedom, equality, solidarity somehow forgot to include some people or groups. So, you know, for some time women, but also in the case of racism, obviously racialized uh, populations. But the very way in which uh, freedom, equality, and solidarity have been th- thought and also institutionalized relies, I mean, that's the another meaning of the structural, right? Relies on that exclusion. So you cannot just say, well, you know, sorry, we forget some people. Let's just include them into this ideal that we all share, enlarge the circle in, you know, Peter Singer's words, but rather there's something wrong in which the circle has been constructed in the first place, and these ideas of, um, you know, uh, freedom, equality, and solidarity in a non-contingent way relied on that exclusion and continued to rely in their reproduction on that exclusion. So that, you know, and for now, you have to think about new ways of understanding the human, basically. You know, he's a humanist, but he doesn't think that we just have to say, well, you know, black people are humans too, but rather we have to rethink what it means to be human. And in a similar way, I understand Du Bois to argue we have to rethink what it means to be a democracy or what it means to subscribe to freedom and equality if these ideals have been, you know, non-contingently related to um, uh, the exclusion of, in, you know, black people. Um, and and so, yeah, maybe in these two ways, I would like to hear from both of you a bit more about how, um, you know, the the, I mean, on the one hand, it's true, it, it does make it into a, You know even bigger problem and it becomes maybe even more difficult to envisage uh, the way forward and you know hence there is um um you know the very prominent position of afro-pessimism for example in in the us which says well that's how it is and there's you know all attempts to reform have only been successful to the extent that they did not touch that underlying structure of exclusion now i think that's potentially ahistorical as well and does to a certain extent also maybe deny the transformative nature of anti-racist and anti-colonial struggles and so on. But yeah, I wonder how one can, you know, navigate between these um, between these positions.
2: Cesar, do you want to start? Or? Sure. I mean, um, I don't know if I have a direct question, a direct answer to your question, but it, it inspires some thoughts in me. Um, this idea Uh, this kind of, you know, pushing back against a kind of internalist critique where we already hold on to these values, right? It's like values of liberty and equality. And if only people, you know, just like realize that their practices are, you know, in confrontation with those values, then, you know, we can probably overcome racism and and how that's, you know, not necessarily such a simple answer. Um, That reminded me of um, Charles Mills' when he, when he wrote about, um, again, liberalism, right? And, and how liberalism from the very beginning, right, in the way that it was instituted by European powers in the sort of colonial era, um, it was never meant to include um, uh, equality for all human beings, right? It, 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 was, it was already meant, always meant to exclude, you know, women, people of color, and so on. And then you know, of course, he does argue for the kind of renewed liberalism, um, that which is maybe perhaps something that you have in mind, uh, with like what you mentioned of voice, for example, um, but also he mentioned this idea uh, that it goes in hand with with this conception of of how liberalism was actually implemented, say in America or implemented in other you know Western democracies, which is that um, when it comes to racism, uh, the U.S. and it seems like it seems to be the case in France as well, they hold an anomaly view of racism, right? Where racism is anomalous to the US, or it's anomalous to France, right? It's just, you know, in, insofar as there was racism, it was the fault of, you know, these Confederates, it was the fault of the Klux Klan, of these individual racists. And you know, when we get rid of them, then our country can go back to uh realizing, you know, all its its promises and all its ideas that it already had from its beginning. Right. And then the opposite view of the of the, uh, of the anomaly view to is to conceive of the United States as as, as a country as a nation state that from its very beginning was founded on the exploitation um of, of black people and you know eventually uh, also the exploitation and the uh, colonization and in, in sort of imperial relation to other people of color in in the americas right and then to understand um the history of racism is not enough to think about individual racists but also how and this goes back to like magali's question about kind of like systemic racism also seems to make this kind of like genealogical claim right about making connections how current systems of racial oppression today can be traced back to historical systems, right? Of racial oppression, like Jim Crow, like slavery, like imperialism. Um, And once you have that kind of genealogy, I think it it becomes easier to reject the anomaly view and it becomes easier to understand how, as you said, all these like ideals of liberty and equality were never meant to apply to to all people. So um, I I think, I, also I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what um, the Afro-pessimistic view would entail, right? Um, I think on the one hand, there's something very accurate about it, at least in the American context, uh, perhaps not, you know, so, you know, I have in mind, for example, like the uh, conversion interest hypothesis by Derek Bell, Bell, right, where, you know, kind of every, every, like, step of racial progress was only, um, you know, attainable because it kind of converge with the interests of white people to some extent that is true. I mean, um, at the point where slavery became unsustainable, it was abolished at the point where Jim Crow became sustainable. It was also abolished. So, and, and you know, nothing in the U S with aggressive racial progress happened without, you know, a, a kind of shift in sort of political, um, power from the, for, from, from the part, from the part of black people and people in the anti-racist struggle, but also at the same time, the system, the U- U.S. racial system rearranged in such a way that was able to reintroduce those practices of racial oppression in a new light. Right. So after Reconstruction, you got Jim Crow. Um, after the civil rights movement, you have the kind of, you know, um, backlash of conservative you know, politics that, you know, led to, say, our system of mass incarceration being one of the worst in the, you know, being the worst in the in, in the world. Right. And after Barack Obama, you get the kind of white supremacist backlash and the whole Trump presidency and the current situation we're in today. Um, So, I mean, I I think these kinds of sort of like back and forth um, uh, insofar as, you know, racial progress and racial backlash um, 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 cycle you you encounter in the U.S., I I think gives some credence to to, to kind of more pessimistic uh, or perhaps a more realistic understanding of what takes. Uh, what's required for racial progress. And to me, that goes back to the question of pragmatism and like, what do we want our term racism to do as people that are committed to anti-racist struggle? You know, what is the most helpful, the most pragmatically useful conception of racism? And I think that Magalie's question uh, sort of approach is, 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 is helpful, right, uh, one where we think about, okay, what is gonna be the impact of kind of the way we use the term racism on the people that we're trying to convince? Right. And I think that taking that seriously is very important and making sure that our moral demands are not too high or at least that they're realistic. Right. Um, I think another way to answer that question, uh, and this is kind of where I what I emphasize in my own work, is that the term racism, in in, in my mind, uh, for people of color, people in the anti-racist struggle, I think it also does work of, you know, that's a kind of explanatory work. It does a work of like helping us understand, you know, something beyond their lived experience. People of color experience racism on a day-to-day basis. We don't need people to tell us, you know, that it does or does not exist. It's something that you just experience. And I think that, you know, when I I read a lot of people like Du Bois or Fanon or Stuart Hall, Charles Mills, um, Patricia Collins, like all the people that are engaged in trying to understand and explain racism, I think part of the goal here is to go from this kind of level of lived experience um, to a level where you kind of make connections and understand, okay, what is the connection between individual and interpersonal racism at the cognitive uh, level, at the affective level, at the level of social practices, institutions, and whole systems. And I think that part of what the concept of systemic or structural racism does for us today is to be able to draw those connections, right? To say that, you know, these microaggression that I experienced the other day uh, this sort of formal discrimination that I experienced the other day, is not just like a one-off occurrence. It's not just an anomaly that happened in an otherwise racially just society, but it's part of a broader system, broader, broader pattern that affects people like me, um, that affects people of color in general, and trying to understand what that system looks like and how it works, how it operates, how it sustains itself, how it legitimizes itself. Um, and I think that kind of work of trying to like figure out how this system of racial oppression works and then calling that systemic racism, I think as a, as a matter of like explaining and like epistemic development um, um, is, is important. And, 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 and I think that this is why people are so drawn to the term racism. I, I think, you know, part of what happens in, I have my own kind of like understanding of the history of the term racism on the American context, I think part of what how you can understand that history is as an attempt to make sense of racism. Um, and so, you know, and the way, the history is very similar, right? I mean, it starts um, with racism referring originally to a system of racial beliefs, racial ideologies. Um, in the American context, um, the most important original work was by a German called Magnus Hirschfeld, who published a book entitled uh, Racismus. Uh, and then it was, it, w- it was translated in English as racism. And I think he was a sexologist, but he was reacting to Nazism, and he was reacting to the the, the doctrine of the races that was, you know, underlie the whole, you know, th- um, the whole, you know, Nazi project, and a rejection of it. it. You know, the book was basically a rejection of that racial doctrine as as false, right? And then that was the term racism. Originally, the scope of the term was to refer to racist beliefs, racist doctrines. Then got expanded to think about what Magali was talking about in terms of um you know cognitive and affective um states at the level of individuals in the American context that was um uh, mostly influenced by the work of Gordon Alport on the no- notion of racial prejudice uh and, and also actually in fact uh Theodore Adorno and his theory of the authoritarian personality was also very influential' for thinking about you know how do we explain the fact that people are still holding on to these irrational racist beliefs right? Um, but then the, the sort of main problematic in the afterwar period on the 40s and 50s was to think about how do we explain the persistence of individual racism of individual racist attitudes um and affects and beliefs uh, and, and and then later with the 60s and the civil rights movement that's when you get a kind of problematic that expands that to thinking about institutional racism and i would say today uh you know what, when i hear black lives matter I think they're they're kind of emphasizing the fact that Yes, racism is institutional. It's present in the police. It's present in the judicial system. But it's also something that is systemic to the United States as a nation state, right? It's something embedded in its history and embedded in its in, in its sort of major institutions. And in order to understand the U.S. as a racial as a system, we need to understand it. So in order to understand racism in America, we need to think of it as, as a racialized system. Um, and and I think this work is uh, and in my mind, is, is sort of explanatory, right? Uh, and I think that that can go like you know, hand in hand with a more sort of like um, um, moralistic work of trying to also think, okay, and racism because it works as a system of racial oppression, also deserves you know moral condemnation, um, either at the level of individuals, but also at the level of 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 social structures. I personally don't think that every ascription of racism. Necessarily needs to entail a moral condemnation of individuals. Um, so, for example, in work uh, in the work of Charles Mills, uh, um, no, not the work of Charles Mills. Tommy Shelby, you know, argues uh, for making a distinction between individual morality and political morality. Right. So, when we make um, ascriptions of racism at the level of individuals, we may emphasize moral condemnation of individual persons for their beliefs or attitudes, their bad moral character they're bad epistemic, you know, character. Um, but at the level of social structures, which you know, we could also operate at a level of normativity, we can make claims about the injustice of certain institutional arrangements, right? And, and and I think that those normative judgments do not necessarily require a moral condemnation of individuals that should be perceived as an attack on their moral character. Uh, so, I, you know, I think if we kind of have like a, this kind of, distinction between two levels of normative analysis or normative judgment, then we also may be able to bypass some of the issues um, you know, regarding white defensiveness, white fragility that, you know, from a practical perspective are, are also are also um, um important
0: yeah by the way Hirschfeld's uh book is basically unavailable <laughs> since its publications in the since its publication in the 30s. It's, it's amazing that you know the the book that introduced the term, as you say, it has been basically out of print in English and in German since that time, so something to rediscover. Um, Magali, I mean, um, maybe you want to come in on this, and also um, I wanted you to maybe talk a bit about the way in which in your own work the persistence of historical structural injustices such as slavery um, are taken to imply moral responsibilities in the present. So. Um, you know, that's that's something that you've written about. And I think it's it's also in light of what um, César said. It seems very pertinent uh, in this context.
1: Yes, thank you. Yeah, I think your your, your previous question was a, <clears throat> a big question. And, and like César, I don't know if I can actually answer it, but you're right, it, it is connected, I think, to the historicization or genealogical approach of the question of racism. And uh, so I would say that there's something that we need to keep in mind, I think, again, if the whole point is to fight uh, against racism, that is, if our conceptual analysis is explicitly connected to a normative and and practical uh, point of view, which I think with regards with racism has to be the case that is we don't work on racism from a purely metaphysical uh point of view or epistemological point of view, but we are uh, committed to to well minimize maybe put an end to to racism. so I think there are two uh dimensions: one is space and the other is time um, so from a, a spatial or spatial point of view um we, we can uh, look at the phenomena, uh, both of individual racism and uh, institutional racism, at a very local level and at a very global level. And this is a, something that is very difficult, I think, because we have to have both um, in our hands when trying to actually pinpoint what racism is. So we have to have an entomologist view and astrophysicist view, you know. And uh, try to navigate in between these different scales. Why? Well, first, because, uh, for instance, again, in, in France, but in Europe, probably more generally, um, there is some uh, racial uh, uh, racialization, that is, the construction or production of racial categories and racial groups, at a very local municipal even neighborhood level and i'm i'm thinking here of some some a group that we didn't we didn't talk about but that's the rome uh, or tsigans group which is a very important issue in europe and and was in the 2010s uh, when there was a huge backlash um, in Italy, in France, uh, in uh, the UK, against uh, Roms or 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 Zigans. So, and we could see, and some people uh, actually worked on that. We could see how the group was constructed as a problem um, at the European level and very locally uh, in at the urban level, and they were marginalized. I mean, physically, urban marginalized, but also prevented to go to school because of the way uh, segregation worked in different uh, uh, European cities, which, were, uh, w- which can be described as racial cities, like in, in the really way of trajectories and, um, and uh, groups are uh, situated within the urban uh, landscape and this is important because you cannot understand how uh, uh, roms were racialized if you don't have a, a look at the european level the definition of the group who are they uh, what's their history very mythical history in general but you know in order to grasp uh, the europe the group as at a european level and you also have to look at how it works at the municipal level. Very cities in France, in the uh, suburbs of Paris, trying to, you know, uh, have the group of Tziggins who were uh, anticipated as uh, posing issues rather settle in the other municipality than their own. And you had competition to kind of um, uh, have them out of the urban landscape. So this is an example, and this is the space uh, issue. But you also have the history issue and or time issue. And that's when I think that in order to understand, and again, maybe uh, fight against uh, racism today, you need to have a look at how it was, or they, the, the very different types of racisms were produced um, in history. César mentioned it, you had different waves, but... You also had different waves um, in different places in Europe. I mean, for instance, 15th century Spain uh, and Portugal, um, Jews and Moors or Muslims were constructed as racialized groups, and they were constructed as racialized groups. And we can know that because of many works that worked on the conversos issue, that is, uh, the problem of Jews and Moors who had converted to Catholicism and still were not considered as a real uh, part of the body politic, just like the old Catholics. So, and they were, then the bodies were... um, Uh, marked, uh, stigmatized, they had to wear specific uh, signs, but uh, marriages or or marital unions were also forbidden. So you you could see that the racial categories that applies to bodies and genealogy, like physical uh, phenotypes and genealogical uh, lineage, were there already in in 15th century uh, Portugal and Spain. Of course, the transatlantic slave trade is also a very important moment in the construction of uh, races, uh, modern ideas of races, whether we talk of the concept or the categories or the processes of racialization uh, as modern. But yeah, so we have to look at uh, all these different uh, constructions, racialization processes. And for a very important thing, in my opinion, which is we have to be careful not to uh, uh, erect one type of group of race, race and one type of racism as the only model or paradigm of a racial group or racism, compared to which the others are maybe, I don't know, racial hostility or racial stigmatization, but not racism per se and i think that um if you look at history and how racialization processes occurred then you can see that racism is indeed um a term that encompasses very different phenomena and has to, and and there is no i don't know there is no hierarchy of of severeness or gravity or you know All these different phenomena the expulsion of Jews from Spain, uh, transatlantic slave trade, uh, Holocaust, uh, uh, the Rome problem in Europe in the 2010s are very important um, uh, racist phenomena. And each time, if you want to, to fight, each time you have to... Well, do the work all over again. That is, understand how the groups were constructed, understand what uh, uh, power differentials are at stake, whose interests uh, it is to define these groups as such, uh, who are the privileged and uh, disadvantaged persons or marginalized, oppressed. I mean, to use Iris Young's five faces um, of oppression, you have to each time really pay attention to the very specific. Uh, mechanisms or devices or dispositif, uh, to use the Foucault uh, term, um, that are at stake uh, each time there is a racial issue uh, that that is posed to us. But I don't think, Robin, that we can once for all say, "Okay, we're done. Now we know, and we know what racism is. We've identified all options, and we know what to do in in each case." I think each generation has to work with uh, the the new um, uh, positioning, the new uh, stakes, uh, the new uh, state of the world, too. I mean, at the global level, the new uh, uh, power dynamics that we face. And, and that's something that, yeah, we have to do. Each time, all over again, or using, of course, knowledge from uh, different uh, thinkers and and, mm-hmm. and Du Bois, of course, Charles Mills, of course, and others. But um, yeah, it's our job.
0: <laughs> no, I agree. On that I mean, that's a very important point. Maybe to also um, uh, conclude on that, uh, let's say, this comparative perspective um, uh, that also takes into account different historical but also s- socio-geographic um, contexts. Uh, can help us reduce the complexity of um, racism, which is also part of its power to reproduce itself, to, um, you know, sort of one of the many dividing lines that that are part of its operation. And I think it's very important to see that um, beyond what is sometimes in the US discussion called the so-called black-white binary, there are these proliferating forms of racism against Romani people, as you mentioned, um, anti-migrant racism, today is still sometimes um, sort of um, in the, de- described in a very distorted way as xenophobia, which in a way reproduces the racism by saying, well, you know, these are strangers and people are afraid of them. That's what this is mm-hmm. about. Um, to um, you know, also uh, the way in which racism um, in very, very complex ways functions in, in South America, which um, you know, we haven't really talked about uh, today, although it would have been a very interesting topic for our conversation as well, we have to slowly come to a close. Um, uh, Cesar, if you have any concluding thoughts on this, I want to give you the chance to uh, come in as well.
2: Yeah, I think th- these, these last thoughts are, that that you were expressing are very important. Just thinking about the the level of analysis, right? It could be at the national level; it could be at the subnational or supranational level. Um. And, and highlighting, you know, someone that, you know, works in the United States and, you know, did all my uh, graduate work in the United States. I'm obviously influenced by the American model of understanding racism, which I take it because of the influence of American academia has also become influential in other academic settings. But realizing that there's a kind of specificity to, to American racism that cannot sort of be applied so readily to other contexts Um uh, and yet, you know, I, th- I think it's important to also understand that a lot of the people that are, are working, you know, in, in the American context, especially if you read the work of scholar activists like Du Bois, for example, were never just interested in, in American racism, right? They were interested in the color line as a global color line. Charles Mills was always interested in global white supremacy, understanding how racism is, is a global system, right? That encompasses, as Magali said, you know, like from the very beginning um um europe and america and, and the entire world and and you know part of understanding i think each national racism is also understanding its it's um understanding it against the backdrop of like global racism, and I think that that is like the 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 more complex work right is to try to understand how those things interact um, yeah i mean since you since you mentioned it I'll just quickly say something about. Uh, Latin American racism, because I myself am from Latin America. This is where my interest in racism came from. And, you know, one of the most in- interesting developments to so like to keep it curt, right, is, is, is the fact that there is, again, also a, a recent increase in, in white supremacist movements in, in Latin American countries, which you might think it's, an inter- it's, it's a weird development given that Latin America is, is not a very white region, right? Most of people are, are mixed race. Um, uh, and yet, there is a kind of desire to to uh, to go back to the kind of like the the great era of the Spanish Empire, right? And if, for example, in Peru recently, after the latest elections, where an indigenous leader was elected uh, for the first time, an indigenous president was elected uh, in Peru. You had sort of white supremacist groups protesting in the streets with uh, a flag representing the, the cross of Burgundy, which is kind of like the Spanish. Imperialist uh, symbol, uh, which with again a lot of connections with Spanish xenophobic uh, white supremacist parties. Um, you also have, you know, of course, in in Brazil, um, Bolsonaro, with, you know, many racist comments against um, Afro Brazilians and Indigenous Brazilians. Uh, so again, just like in the U.S., I would say in in the Americas, you have a, a resurgence of, of um, white supremacy, which I think is also related to to a, to a recent. Um, you know national and regional visibility of anti-racist movements, uh, both you know anti you know from Black people but also Indigenous people, right? And and movements that have become you know sort of very salient uh, again because of, of 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 struggles for for um averting the economic ecological disaster that is also you know the result of climate change. So in, in Latin America, of course, many Indigenous communities are are fighting against many many of the, of the Negative effects of climate change, and this has led to a much more, uh, much more visibility for them. And 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 again, you know, whenever there is a kind of progress uh, in in the racial struggle, you also get a kind of backlash that um, you you are also experiencing in many countries like Peru or Brazil or or Colombia. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to mention that to your listeners in case they were also interested in in, in this other region of the world. Yeah, but again, thank you so much for, for having uh, for having us, for having me, it's been a great conversation and I've learned a lot as well.
0: Well, yeah, thanks so much to both of you for uh, being so generous with your time and for um, joining the conversation today. It's obvious that we could easily continue uh, this particular conversation. Um, we will continue talking about racism and race on this podcast as well in different um, constellations. Uh, but for now, let me thank uh, Cesar and Magali for their work and talking to us today.
1: Thank you, Robin. Thank you. It was great uh, having this conversation with you.
0: This was Critical Theory in Context on Structural Racism and what it means in practice. My guests for today's conversation were Magali Besson and César Cabezas. The analysis of racist domination was and will continue to be a central theme of our center's events this year. For those who understand German and who have not yet heard this episode, check out my conversation with Christina Leopold and Marina martinez Mateo on the reader they edited and published on the critical philosophy of race and the question of what contribution philosophy can make to understanding racism. Also, we are currently preparing for the central event at the center this year, Nancy Fraser's Benjamin Lectures in June, which have the title Three Faces of Capitalist Labor – uncovering the hidden ties among gender race and class three consecutive lectures that will take place from june 14 to 16. in addition on may 30th we will host a public roundtable with nancy fraser kianga yamata taylor manuela boyachiev and bafta Zarbo on racial capitalism please stay tuned for the details and our next public and in-person event will be on may 13th a debate between nancy fraser Klaus Dürre, and Raul Selig on the question, How green is socialism? For more information and to stay up to date on all these events at the Center for Humanities and Social Change in Berlin, please subscribe to our newsletter on our website at www.criticaltheoryinberlin.de. And to never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast on any of the well known platforms. My name is Robin Selikatis. Thanks so much for listening and hopefully he will join us again next time.